Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice and, uh, nice and toasty in here, right? It's kind of cold outside. I was thinking about uh, how cold it's going to be at Stanwell Tops when we head over to WinterCon, and it slightly frightened me, um, but hopefully it should be okay. You know, we're a month out from our first WinterCon in three years, a little more than three years, which is very exciting. Um, I do really encourage you, um, all of you, to sign up and come along if you call New Life home. Um, or even if you are new and you'd like to see what we're all about, um, I do encourage you to sign up and come along for that. This year, the theme of WinterCon is Born of God. And what it means that we are adopted into God's family, um, living out our identity as sons and daughters of our Father in heaven. So I do encourage you, whether you are uh, maybe first years, you know, first years in uni, um, or whether you might be families with children, uh, to register as well. Um, I think it's really hard for families with children uh, to often commit to something like Winter Conference, um, but we, we want to try to t uh, make it as easy as possible for you with um, different children's ministry stuff, and I believe Fellowship Team is going to come later with some special discounts for families uh, with children as well. Uh, which they'll talk about later. I won't steal your thunder, Edwin, maybe. Not Edwin. <laughs> All right. We've been in our series on baptism, I promise, uh, for a little while now where we're asking the question, who is responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? Who is actually responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? And today, we aim to answer that question. You know, we are four weeks in into our series, but we're going to be answering that question today, and then we've got another three weeks ahead of us. This is the midpoint in our sermon series, and so the prayer is that it's going to serve to illuminate all the other sermons as well. Okay, so the previous three along with the next three as well. So if you're just joining us for the first time today, or if you've uh, missed the other sermons, um, apologies if I do refer back to the previous sermons. Uh, they are available on YouTube and our website as well, but hopefully the sermon today will still be digestible, uh, will still be un understandable, um, though you might not get the fullness of it. Um, hopefully it will still make a little bit of sense to you. Uh, with that in mind, how about I pray for us, and then we'll get into the word. Father, we ask of you this one thing, uh, that you would help us to really understand and really love dwelling in your house for the rest of our days. We want to be one with you. Uh, we want to be one in your family. We want to be one with one another that we call brothers and sisters. We want to be one, united in our understanding of the way to do church together. We pray, Lord, that calling ourselves the family of God would not just become um, a theological framework or just a catchy saying, but would be a lived out truth uh, that we would truly live out what it means to be brothers and sisters in Christ together. We deeply desire to know what it is that you have to say about baptism, about this sacrament of church. We really want to know what it means that, um, that we are called into this thing called baptism. And we want to know, Lord, who's responsible for keeping the promises of baptism as well, God. Would you make these things known to us this morning? Would you help us in our understanding, give us clarity of mind? Help us, Lord, to uh, listen well, to understand, and to receive your word, God. Who are we to make such a request of you, our holy God, our holy King, our Father in heaven? 
and yet you bow your knees to answer us. It's in this that we see your love, your kindness, your patience. It's in this that we place our trust as we listen to your word as it's unfolded to us today. Be with us, Lord, and help us to love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Over the past year and a half, uh, we've talked about some of the things that we grow up with which uh, color our perception of the world, you know, which uh, kind of influence our understanding of things as it comes to uh, the way that we perceive the world around us as we look at our worldview, as we look at the way that we interact with other people. Uh, This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. You know, you might have understood that. This is such a crucial skill for us to have, though, to be able to take a step out of our own shoes to see what kind of viewpoints and perspectives are out there in the world. You know, what kind of opinions that we actually have as well. You know, we have been influenced in some way or another by the culture around us, by the people that you sit near, by the people that you grow up with. And then, when we examine these things, perhaps we can approach uh, other opposing thoughts respectfully, gently. You know, doing this allows us to be as fair as possible you know, when it comes to understanding what other viewpoints might be, to be loving and gracious and patient towards others that differ from you as well. You know, others that have a different opinion, a different theology, a different way of understanding the world. And it also helps you to truly understand what it is that you believe in. You know, unless you approach opposing thoughts, you'll never truly understand what it is that you believe in. Um, You'll never actually understand if it's even as important as you've made it out to be or if it's just something that you've come to accept through simply just being around other people without any real critical thought given to why you believe in these things. This often makes us think that certain things that we believe are non-negotiable. You know, it makes us think, if I give this much, then what will they take from me? You know, we start thinking in these ways. Now, I'd like to submit to you that one area where this happens quite often in church is in the area of baptism. It's in the area of baptism. When we talk about baptism in church, when we think about baptism in church, this is one of those areas where we might not give a great deal of critical thought. Thus far in our series on baptism, we've looked at the unity of the covenant of grace in circumcision of old and baptism of new. That's why all that talk about circumcision today in our passage today. We've looked at the way the Holy Spirit more fully declares and seals the promises of God of the gospel to us through the sacraments. And we looked at last week why we ought to baptize and why we ought to be baptized as well. Now it's entirely possible that until the start of this series that you've never approached these thoughts before, that you've never even heard of these things, that these were a complete mystery to you when you were thinking about baptism, regardless of however long you've been at church. And you know, I don't say that to put any shame on you at all. You know, these are just some of the things that we just pass by sometimes uh, when we think about baptism. It's entirely possible that they still remain a mystery to you as well. You know, I don't uh, believe that it's necessarily an easy thing to grasp. Um, It's especially probably uh, very possible if you don't attempt to work these things out in prayer with God, if you don't wrestle with your faith by talking about it with your life groups, by the community around you, uh, by the people that you're surrounded by. You know, these aren't standalone things where we just hear it on a Sunday morning and then we think, ah, good, 
It was good entertainment for 40 minutes. Now it's time for me to forget about it and live the rest of my life. Now we wrestle with these things together. Sometimes our thoughts on baptism remain where they're at just because of the church or the churches that we've grown up at. Just because of what the church believes, we just kind of wholesale accept what we've heard and that just becomes our thoughts on baptism. Sometimes it could be something a person of influence told us once and then that just makes up our idea about baptism for the rest of our lives just because they were influential in one area we think they must be right about this other area. Or the third option is we sometimes have no thoughts about baptism at all. And baptism is just something interesting to break up the monotony of my voice uh, week to week in the sermon time. But let's clear it up today. What is baptism? Baptism is the ritual washing with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit It signifies and seals our adoption into Christ, our cleansing from sin, and our commitment to belong to the Lord and to his church. This is the definition of baptism. This is what baptism is, this is what it does. And now you might look at this definition and you might wonder about certain parts up there. You might look at that and think, especially knowing that we're gonna try to clear up whose responsibility it is to keep the promises of baptism You might look at that statement up there and think, man, that word commitment makes me feel just a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know if you are a commitment phobe, you know, in here. You wonder if you're able to be counted as committed post-baptism. Perhaps you've already been baptized and you know yourself. If you know yourself well, if you know your habits pretty well, if you know the way that your heart leans and you're honest with yourself, Maybe you've rightly surmised that the commitment to God and his church doesn't come easy. It's hard. Week to week, we fail. I stand before you week to week as a failure when it comes to a fully heart-given-over commitment to God and his church. And so you might wonder about those things. This is where a lot of the misunderstanding comes when it comes to baptism. When we talk about baptism, this area right here is where a lot of the misunderstanding is birthed. There's an incredible amount of pressure that we put upon baptism, that we put upon our shoulders when we think about baptism. Have you noticed this? When you think about baptism in this kind of definition, when we believe that baptism serves solely as a declaration to the world of our faith, suddenly there's just so much pressure upon us that when sin inevitably enters the picture again, post-baptism, it's like our whole world falls apart. How can we call ourselves Christian when we've just declared to the whole world what we are and then we fall into sin? It's like when we said, I promise we had our fingers crossed. How is it that at the baptism we can say, I repent of my sins? I reject selfish living and all that is false and unjust. That's a very big statement, all that is false and unjust. Like, does that mean that I can't kind of cheat up my taxes a little bit? Like, I can't go like 5Ks over the speed limit, even here in the church parking lot where it's really, like 10 is very slow, all right? I renounce all that is evil. 
Can we say those statements with any shred of integrity? And then the next day, we find we're struggling with these things all over again. You know, the water's barely dried from our baptism, and still we're struggling with these things. What good are we if our word counts for so little? For the Christians, a word of comfort to you when it comes to this, we've fallen into the trap that we talked about last week if we start talking in this way. This is a trap. We've come to believe that baptism is a sort of graduation rather than an initiation into the faith. Who is responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? That's what our sermon series is all about, right? Who is responsible for keeping the promises of baptism? The answer to that question is found in the covenant of grace. We find unity and continuity as well in the covenant of grace. From the time of the circumcision to the time of baptism now. Right, let's take a look at the passage, okay? Romans 4, 9 to 11, the first part of 11. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. Think back to week one of our series, if you were here with us, if indeed you can remember uh, that sermon. We talked about the link between the circumcision and the baptism, and the covenant of God's grace found in both of these things. Look at the passage today now, what it says about the timing of Abraham's declared righteousness. It was before his circumcision. As important as that sign and the seal is, it was before the sign and the seal that he was declared righteous. The blessing of righteousness by faith isn't just for those who were circumcised, the scripture tells us, but for the uncircumcised. God's covenant love and the gift of grace that he has for us, they don't depend on circumcision. It's faith alone. This much we covered in week one. It's faith alone that brings us the blessing of righteousness. It was 24 years since God's initial call to Abram and his confirmation of the covenant through circumcision. But now try replacing that word circumcised with baptized in our passage. Is this blessing only for the baptized then? Or is it also for the unbaptized? By faith alone, we're made a part of Abraham's spiritual family. But not only Abraham's, we're made a part of Jesus's spiritual family by faith alone. Righteousness is not dependent on baptism. Faith is not dependent on baptism. So when we talk about what you might encounter in your heart after baptism, when we talk about falling away, when we talk about sin, remember that we're initiated into the faith. This is just a start. 
and God's grace found in Jesus Christ is sufficient at the initiation of our faith, even before baptism, to cover over a multitude of sins. What comes about afterwards has no bearing on the all-sufficient grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, on the righteousness and the faith that you were gifted. The sins that you take part in have no bearing on what he has done for you insofar as what it's worth. Does that make sense? It's, this doesn't mean that we ignore sin. Please don't get this wrong. This doesn't mean that we ignore sin. Far from it, we find the only true way of dealing with sin. Romans 6 reads this. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? To believe that we've grown and graduated into something through baptism would cause us to be absolutely shattered, to be completely beaten down and unable to rise from our defeat to sin. We feel ambushed, like it wasn't supposed to go like this. We fall, and then we don't want to get up. But to be baptized into initiation, into the spiritual life, we start to understand that our lives are participation in spiritual warfare. That we're signing up for something that's a lot bigger than we expected. J.C. Ryle, he puts it this way. True Christianity is a struggle, a fight, and a warfare. Where there is grace, there will be conflict. The believer is a soldier. There is no holiness without a warfare. Saved souls will always be found to have fought a fight. We must battle against sin. This much is so clear in Scripture itself. We must battle against sin. What changes, though, between the two different understandings of baptism? When we look at sin, what changes between these two definitions? Our understanding of our identity in the midst of sin changes. Our identity, the way that we understand, the way that we actually perceive our identity has to change when we talk about the two different definitions of baptism. We remain children of God. This is the correct way to look at your identity. If you know God, if you have accepted God, you remain a child of God. Though we struggle with temptation, though we struggle with sin, it doesn't change our essence. We are not children of wrath anymore, reveling in our sin. We're something different. We're children who struggle to behave ourselves sometimes. Instead, what, what happens? We turn to God for his grace once again and recognize that it's Jesus, it's what he did that's sufficient for us. His blood, his love, covers over a multitude of sins, past, present, and future. This should change the way that we see sin, the way that we battle against sin. Okay, John Owen, in his, uh, in his work, Mortification of Sin, he says this, Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. His blood is a great sovereign remedy for sin-sick souls. Live in this and you will die a conqueror. 
Yes, you will, through the good providence of God, live to see your lust die at your feet. Our battle against sin is won with what? With faith. This is what we understand from scripture. This is what we understand is being unpacked here by, this, by John Owen, this theologian. Our battle against sin is won with faith. It's faith in his grace that's the remedy. It's what got us here in the first place. It's why we sit in this room right now. And it's what continues to keep us. To look at the gospel of grace and to recognize that all Jesus is and all he did for us was enough for our salvation. It's to look at the gospel of grace again and to recognize that all Jesus is and all he did is enough for your sanctification as well. What got us to the dance is what keeps us dancing as well. All of our lives can be characterized by confession of sin. We must continue to confess and repent. We must repent back towards our holy God and living out our identity as children of God. Now, as you can see from our passage in Romans, as Abraham and the circumcision preached to us, it's always, always, always faith in grace. Remember what we talked about last week? It's by faith alone, in God's grace alone, through Christ alone, to the glory of God alone as revealed in the scriptures alone. This is what takes us there. Is it all right if we turn the heaters off? Is that all right? <laughs> Getting a bit stuffy up here. All right. Why should we believe that the sacraments are any different then? When we talk about all of these different things that make up our faith, when we talk about what brought us here, when we talk about what sanctifies us, when we talk about the basic tenets of our faith, and then we talk about this rite of baptism, why should we believe that the sacraments are any different? The promises of baptism are God's. Whose grace is it that fuels the baptism? God. Who's the one who sanctifies you throughout the rest of your lives? God. It's not us. We don't have the power to do that. It's God. The promises of baptism are God's. And yet, mysteriously and lovingly, we're invited to participate with him. He doesn't take away our agency in this. He loves us to that, to that degree that he brings us near, that he invites us to participate. We participate in the sacraments that we've talked about in recent weeks, the visible participatory signs of baptism and the communion, and there's this intersection of the tangible and the mysterious. But this idea of participation is a little bit different from any idea of participation that you're aware of right now. Okay, when we normally think about participation, we might think about like uni groups or something, you know, like we have to work together, we have to participate or else we don't get the mark, right? Sometimes we coast by. But this idea of participation, it's both active and passive. And do you know what I mean by this? Scott McKnight, this theologian, he puts it this way. Baptism is the passive act of being plunged into the story of Jesus with those two prominent events of death and resurrection taking front stage 
We die with Jesus and we're raised with Jesus. We're plunged into his life by our baptism. It is about what God has done, not what we are qualified to do. This is the biggest statement about baptism. It's about what God has done, not about what we are qualified to do. It's a passive act, okay? There's an oxymoron for you, it's a passive act. Your participation is passive in that you're being plunged, okay? You're being plunged into baptism and into Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. What could we possibly do to enter into someone else's life, death, and resurrection? It's what God has done and what God is doing. Our qualifications don't come into play. The active part is our commitment to such a new life, but even in this, as we said before, there's a bit of a passive element to it because it's about us turning back to the grace of God. The active part is in us confessing, repenting, turning back, but where's the change? It comes through the Holy Spirit. Can you see the connection point between that kind of statement and our passage in Romans? Can you see it here? Let's cross-reference to the passage that launched our series, okay? That's the second one that Christine read for us, Colossians 2, 11 to 15. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with his obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. It's when you were dead in trespasses that you were made alive again with him in the uncircumcision of your flesh that you were made alive with him and forgave us all of our trespasses. It's in the midst of sin, of death, that you were made alive. He didn't wait until you were ready to live again. He didn't wait until you were clean enough that he could properly clean you. At your dirtiest, at your darkest stage is when he came. Faith alone has made you clean not the circumcision, not the baptism. What does that mean? That means that baptism is not necessary for you to be in a right standing with God. Jesus is necessary, not your baptism. Yes, the baptism was instituted by God as a sign and a seal but it's not essential to your faith as such. Please don't misconstrue this. The Holy Spirit does more fully declare and seals the promises of the gospel through the sacraments, like baptism, like the communion. But the blessings of God are yours now, even if unbaptized. If this is true, can we say that the inverse is true also? It's not necessary for you to be in a right standing with God in order to be baptized. How does that sit with you? If you are considering baptism, it's probably ideal 
that you're in a good place with God? Let me qualify that. We saw that in week one. All sorts of people were circumcised at the time that Abraham subjected everyone in his household to the circumcision. Even the people that went kicking and screaming into it. If it was necessary, would you ever be in the right place to declare yourself ready for the baptism? Do you believe that you will be? What nexus of time and space and eternity would you need to be standing at in order to rightly declare yourself righteous enough to stand before God and accept life, death, and resurrection in Jesus? That you're entering into the story of Jesus? That you're in right standing with God? Once again, a caveat. I don't want you to misconstrue this. This doesn't mean reveling in unrepentant sin. Okay, that's a very like otherworldly, other religion understanding of baptism. If you think, I'll just wait and then get baptized and then I'll be okay. That's not faith. Okay, that's like witchcraft or something. I don't know what that is. Listen to this statement again. Your standing with God has little to do with your baptism. Please rest assured in this. Baptism is a sign and a seal applied by God. The promises of baptism are God's to give to you, and they aren't tied to the time when your baptism took place. They aren't tied to your faith when you were baptized, and they're definitely not tied to the faith of the pastor or the minister who baptized you. Imagine if this wasn't the case. What if the promises of baptism were tied to the time in which you were baptized? Would that mean that everything that God did before you were physically baptized gets invalidated as non-acts of grace? What if they were tied to your faith when you were baptized, to the state of your faith at the time when you were baptized? Could the sins then that have been committed since that time invalidate your baptism and the promises that came with it? Sometimes we truly believe this. Even if we don't say it with such words, we sometimes believe that we've invalidated something, that we've ruined our salvation in some way. What if they were tied to the faith of the pastor who baptized you? Do you trust me that much? I don't. Recently, there was a big controversy in the United States. I don't know if you read about this. A th like thousands of baptisms that a local priest had administered were declared invalid due to him saying one word incorrectly, saying, we baptize you instead of I baptize you. The church looked at that, went back, contacted all the parents, all the people who were baptized, and said, all those baptisms are invalid. Why is baptism tied to this man and his words? Is this what we believe? Like, is God a genie who's only activated by a certain, you know, bunch of words in a certain order? Like, is he that evil genie where if you say something wrong, he could, you know, like stupidly misconstrue it and then your life is ruined forever? He's not a monkey's paw, okay? It's not a magic spell that could backfire if you get the words wrong. 
how could we ever pray if we were so worried about getting the words right? This is why there's no rebaptism. This is why there's no such thing as getting rebaptized. Because to invalidate a prior baptism will be to put ourselves in the place of God who ordains the baptism. Will be to say, we're the one who conducts the baptism. We're the one who decides the meaning of baptism. We're the one who does the promises of baptism. It's God's. There is confirmation for those who were baptized at too young of an age to remember or you know, if they were infants or children who wished to affirm and embrace their faith. That's a very beautiful thing, confirmation. All right, let's talk controversy. When we talk about baptism, there's a particular divide that actually exists between those that believe that infant baptism is valid and those that believe that it's invalid. Those that believe that baptism is only for those who are able to make a confession of faith. In our congregation here at New Life, there are probably brothers and sisters that sit on either side of this issue. I call you both brothers and sisters though. I've seen people get divided over this. I've seen churches get divided over this. I, in church history, people murdered each other for this theology. If you look back at the history of the Anabaptists, this is such a black mark on the history of Christianity, and I think you should know it, how contradictory that someone could look at a brother or sister in faith and say, wait, you believe that about baptism? How can you get your theology so wrong? I should kill you. <laughs> is that not contradictory? In, in, anyway. There's been hurt on both sides. I have no interest in disparaging either side. Whether you are pedo-baptist or credo-baptist, whether you believe that baby baptism is valid or invalid, there's no need to put each other down. Baptism is a secondary issue not worth dividing over. If you're on one side of the baptism issue and you believe that the other side is incorrect, then you must believe that you are more mature in your faith, that you've come to a place where you understand the baptism better than this other person, and that the other person is less mature than you then. And that's okay for you to think that way. I'm not making fun of you here. This might be why you know the truth about baptism. And if you truly believe this, if you've gone over your history and you understand why you believe these things and you still hold these things to be true, surely then, as the more mature believer, you could take the stance of servanthood and submission and recognize that this isn't a primary issue. And then you could love the immature believer by not harming their faith or beating them down over this issue. Even if you couldn't do this, isn't the mark, isn't one mark of a mature believer submission to the doctrinal stance of the church that they call home? If you call new life home, you must understand what we believe about baptism, what we teach about baptism. New life is a Presbyterian church. Like what does that mean for us? Infants are baptized here not in order to declare them saved. Please don't get this wrong. I think a lot of the misunderstanding about baby baptism comes from here when we start thinking, well, they're clearly declaring 
that their child or their infant who, ha- who has no idea what's going on is saved, that be the case if it's by faith. No one is saying this child or this infant is saved. We've talked about how baptism is not a salvation issue. But if the promises of baptism are not tied to the timing of the baptism, surely we can see it's good and right to baptize infants, particularly if it's a secondary issue that you don't have to battle over, at least in the doctrine of the church that we call home. Baptism of infants is significant in the Presbyterian church because by it, we signify that God is the one who reaches out first. This is one of the most particular things about a Presbyterian theology on infant baptism. God is the one who reaches out first, not us to him. Before a baby can grow up and even think about choosing God, about working for his love, about doing anything, God makes the choice to love us. That's being signified. That's Christianity. God chose us, we did not choose him. On the other side of the issue, if you're a believer's baptism person, you must still believe that God is the one who chooses us first. That's something that you have to wrestle with. We aren't able to do or think anything that, is marred by, that isn't marred by sin in some way. Since out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, is what Matthew tells us, and the heart gives way to action. We know that our hearts have sin. God is stained with sin. How can we possibly believe that we will be the ones to choose God first, unless God does regenerative work in our hearts first? For my credo-baptist brothers and sisters here, those that believe in believer's baptism, those who say that confession of faith must be made in order for baptism to happen, in no way am I trying to put you or your theology down. Please don't hear that from me today. Your convictions may remain your convictions. I hope that as you work these things out, that you come to solidify some of the things that you believe. You might give up some of the other things that you believe. Whatever the case, I hope you come to it prayerfully. But all of us, all of us, not just credo-baptists, but pedo-baptists, everyone, even those that have no idea what I'm talking about right now, all of us must approach what we believe with an openness of heart unless we truly believe that we've arrived at a place where we're so perfected in our theology that we never need to learn anymore. We must have a willingness to listen to the other side, that we might end up affirming what is definitely true, and we might end up discarding what is just culturally absorbed but has no real substance in our lives. When it comes to the doctrine of the church, however, we must all be willing to submit ourselves, me included, to a central doctrine that we teach and affirm together. I might not fully agree with the elders of our church on some doctrinal issues. Don't tell them that, that's a hypothetical, you know. But I might not fully agree, but I will submit myself to the central doctrine of the church because that's what's good and right. That's what's taught by scripture. I believe that God works through faithful men and women. I believe that God works even through unfaithful men and women. And if God is working in those areas, then I trust in the leadership that God has placed over us. All right, for my believers, Baptist brothers and sisters, let's define it out together, okay? You affirm baby dedications. The right of baby dedication finds its roots in the Baptist denomination, okay? 
It's not without similarities, though, to infant baptism in the Presbyterian and the Anglican Church. Let's be clear about this. We're not talking about two different things here. Presbyterians and Anglicans, when they say that the infant or the child are getting baptized, they're not saying saved by baptism. Please do not conflate an infant baptism with such a statement. Are you saved by the baptism or are you saved by Christ? Infant baptism means that the parents of the baby are committing themselves, just like in a baby dedication, to raising the child in the knowledge and love of Christ to the best of their abilities. We're using different terminology though. It's a commitment towards discipleship of this child. Like the command in Deuteronomy 6, we're to do this for our children, talking about them when we sit in our houses and walk along the road, when we lie down and get up, our lives should speak of our faith in Christ in every area of our lives. Semantically speaking, once again, there's a difference in terms being used, infant baptism, baby dedication. But surely, all of us, brothers and sisters across denominations, affirm that this is not a salvation issue, that the promises of baptism are God's to make and keep, and our commitment flows from a passive action participation. Here's a level of confidence that I have in sharing about the effectiveness of God's grace and blessing from outside of time. I submit to you a photo of my own baptism. Look how bad my posture is. You know, my, my posture is bad now, but that, that's something else. You, know, it's, you could plot a logarithm on that, you know. But um, this is me. Take note of the date on the certification. I don't know if you can see it. It says 17th of December, 2000. I was 15 years old at this time. What did I know about baptism? What did I know about faith? I'd moved to Australia that year. And yet I would say, my Christian faith really started to take shape. That's actually making my posture look better. I would say that my Christian faith really began to take shape nine years later. That's when I attribute my Christian faith really starting to take shape. Did I turn 180 degrees at that time? No. I'm gonna turn 90 degrees like my neck there, okay? But does that invalidate my baptism? Does it invalidate my faith? Why would you hire me then, right? God, as the maker of time and space, exists outside of what we perceive, what we live through, what we experience, as the flow of time. He made time. He can't just exist within time. He must stand outside of it in order to create time. Does this make sense to you? This is a little bit hard to conceptualize. He can experience all moments in time, past, present, and future, as they're happening right now. He's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he is God existing outside of time. He experiences all things now. Time can become elastic enough of a concept for us as well that significant moments like this one for me, like the baptism for you, or each communion that you take each month, or times when you verbally make some sort of commitment to follow Christ, or some such other thing, don't lose their significance at all. And yet, because time is elastic, you're freed of the pressure that comes along with it. You can begin to see that God's acts and dispositions of grace and love towards you weren't localized 
to one specific time and place in your life, but have been constant. Like, I like that song, you know, Present Power Glory. When we're singing, though, and we're singing, come and fill this place with your power, what is it, with your grace, hasn't he done that already? It's still good for us to sing it, I think, okay, because it's prayerful, okay? But we have to understand he's at work. He's already here at work. He has been constantly at work. Was my faith only started in 2009? That's where I attributed the turning point for myself at a winter conference for New Life that many years ago. But was that when my faith really only started? No. Like, what do you make of how I ended up at different churches before then? Just dotted randomly throughout my lifetime that I just decide out of the goodness of my heart, I think I'll try out church today. What about my mother asking me to read the little Our Daily Bread you know, devotionals years prior? Why did she do that? Was it out of the goodness of her heart? No, God has loved me, knowing me from before I was born, Scripture tells me. He says the sta- same statement about you. God has loved you from before you were knit together in your mother's womb, it tells us. Brothers and sisters, let's go back to salvation. It's only by faith in Jesus Christ, by what he did on behalf of us on the cross, it's by the good news of God's grace that we are saved. What better way to signify this than through the baptism, through the sacraments of the church? We saw the from death to life imagery last week, how the waters of baptism display for us all of this and allow us to participate in the death, life, and resurrection of Jesus. So truly, we can preach the gospel through our baptizing here at New Life as well. That the promises of the gospel are God's to keep and God's to make through baptism. Let me pray for us. Father, we trust in you and you alone. The beautiful, wonderful, seemingly untouchable promises of the gospel that come through the promises of baptism. We thank you, Lord, that they are yours to make and yours to keep. We can't possibly have hope without recognition that it's you. It's you at work. It's you at work in our lives. It's always been you at work in our lives. You have saved us You have kept us, and you make the baptism effective to us. It's not something that we do. We thank you, Lord, for your promises that find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that we can baptize and dedicate our children to you, knowing that you are so much more faithful and gracious towards them than we could ever hope to be even when we can't keep the promises of baptism for ourselves, you keep the promises of baptism for our children, for us. Who can we trust in if not ourselves? Well, our delight is in saying that we can trust in you. We thank you, Lord, that you are good. We thank you, Lord, that you are worthy of all praise and all honor. 
We give our thanks to you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.